Okay. All right. So um, it's, it's kind of a given that the uh, Christianity, um, you know, claims that we're all sinners and, um, you know, one sector of Christianity, this is like the almost like the central, one would sometimes think maybe the only theme that is super important to feel bad about being a sinner, and then we can leverage that uh, feeling of being bad, we can leverage it to get right with God, and it's, it's just awesome. But today, I would like to examine how Jesus, who has, you know, a thing or two to say about Christianity, I guess, you know, how Jesus actually casts suspicion on how we use this term, sinner, and particularly how we use it against others, and then how we probably use it against ourselves in a way that has nothing to do with God whatsoever. We're, we're going to engage in what our Jewish friends call midrash. Uh, midrash uh, is simply interpreting a text of scripture. So in many of the Jewish Bibles, there's midrash on the side. There's, there's commentary from various uh, rabbis, and the commentaries often don't agree with one another. And that's just the, the Jewish way of engaging a text. It's like these are, uh, these are living stories, and, and they affect us all differently. Like if you saw a star of is born, you know, big powerful themes like suicide and then love and like the, the getting juiced by, you know, leading a rock concert and, and, you know, that movie affected me deeply, but I'm sure it affected me in ways that are very different than the way it affected you. And this is the power of stories. This is why we communicate in stories rather than just communicating with rules or with, uh, you, know, um, you know, here's how the world works. Um, so when the rabbis would do midrash and, and to this day, it's, it's totally understood by the whole community that this is really meant to stimulate thought and evoke feelings as we engage a text. Uh, no, no rabbi gets to drop the mic after his midrash, you know, and they're like, that's the last word. It's, it's kind of like coding for you um, software geeks. My grandson is getting into coding and... Um, you know, I verified this with him because I don't know a thing about coding, but apparently there's many ways to like build a new app through coding, and some of the ways are better than others. Some ways just don't work. You can't just do anything, but there's lots of good ways to get the job done when you're a computer. Kwame, is that correct? Okay, that's correct. I got that straight from a, someone who knows their stuff. So let's do some uh, midrash on that text that you have before you, which is from the Gospel of Luke, uh, the seventh chapter. It's the end of the seventh chapter. And just to set the immediate context, which is in the first paragraph of what you've got before you, is Jesus by this time has gained a pretty solid re reputation as a sinner because he hangs out with sinners. And he's complaining here at the end that, you know, he can't win for losing with some of the elders and sages who are putting this label on him. He says, you know, John the Baptist, his predecessor, lives out in the desert and, you know, abides by a strict vegan diet. And you say he has a demon. Uh, I enjoy a good party and you call me a wine-soaked glutton and a sinner. So Luke 7, 36 through 50, which is what you have before before you is uh, is kind of very closely related to what he's uh, what his complaint is about the way 
people are labeled sinners. So let's read um, verse 36. Strictly speaking, let me read and you listen and you read along silently. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Reclined at the table, it's important, like laying sideways um, as was done at the time, which seems like a great idea. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him, Jesus, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet with anointing and anointing them with uh, the perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, um, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A money lender has two debtors. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one he forgave more. And he said to him, you judge correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water from my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, Simon, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, uh, for, who is forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Um, so this story, along with several others in the gospel, um, actually is designed to get us to question the sinner label when it's applied to people. Not to like use the sinner label, not just assume we all know what the sinner label is, but to actually question it. He's undermining the use of the label sinner. And I'm, I'm, I'm getting a lot of help from a book that I, I just love. I found it really super helpful. It's called Sinners, Jesus and the, His Earliest Followers by uh, Greg Carey. So he's a, a New Testament scholar in uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I, I love Jim Carrey. He's a, this is really clear, simple to e easy to read, clear as a bell writing. Um, Theology on Tap might be interested in this book, Sinners, uh, Jesus and His Earliest Followers. But he points out that, that um, twice, possibly three times, the woman is labeled simply a sinner. She doesn't get a name. You see this often in the Gospels. It's uh, reflecting the patriarchal culture of the Gospels that um, the men are named much more often in the Gospels than the women are. Probably reflects the fact that, you know, the men didn't care that much about the names of the women. They just forgot the names, so they're not included in the text. And, and this is clearly the case here. The men are named, Jesus is named, the Pharisee is named Simon, but the woman is just just the woman. 
Um, it's a sign of her inferior uh, social status. You know, discrimination just comes in a thousand and one different ways. And you only notice it if you're the one being discriminated against, you know. <laughs> and everyone else goes like, wow, I didn't mean that as discrimination. But just like not using people's names and like not hearing their names and not understanding their names because they're unfamiliar. So you don't use the name. That's all just all part of this system of what humans do. Uh, people with less power are often more likely to be labeled um, than to be named. So labels are used in a culture to uh, dismiss people normally or to control people. Uh, so women are more easily labeled than men. You could probably think of a lot of like classic labels for women. Uh, minorities than majority people, non-citizens than citizens. Um, now in the Gospels, there were certain people, it's almost like a class or a category of people who got the sinner label. Um, but what their sins are is actually never, never defined. It's not clear. How, did, what, how do you qualify in the Gospels for the sinner label? Um, the tradition um, of interpretation of this text is, is very telling. The tradition identifies this woman with Mary Magdalene. Uh, and uh, the tradition further identifies Mary Magdalene as a prostitute. Um, you know, the Da Vinci Code, uh, I think uh, Mary Magdalene is Jesus' lover, and Mary Magdalene is very, definitely sexualized in the tradition, and I often identified with this woman in Luke 7, but there, that's all tradition. That's not, that's not text. Um, you know, some people see um, the woman, you know, uh, bathing Jesus' feet with her, her, his tears and, and wiping them with her hair as this kind of sexual act, with act with sexual connotations. I even heard one commentator say, you know, that, you know, in the Jewish tradition, the feet are a euphemism for the male genitalia, and then she's, you know, it's like, oh. Um, but women also would like let down their hair for when they were in mourning or in distress. Um, think about it, you know, Jesus is reclined at the table, so he's like on his side, you know, propping himself up with his elbow, which does seem like an awkward way to eat, but I, I mean, I'm just a Westerner. I just feel like I, I just wanted to go straight down, but I don't want to go sideways. But. <laughs> That's just a, has nothing to do with anything. Um, so his feet are pointing away from him. And so literally she would come from behind him to anoint his feet. Um, and um, she's weeping. She is wiping uh, his feet with her uh, hair. Um, but the significant action in the text is the anointing. She comes with the anointing oil. And that, that's obviously her purpose in coming. And in the process, she starts to weep. And so this, this pretty clearly to me is an act of devotion. Now the thing about the sinner label, and, and this is where uh, uh, Greg Carey was super helpful for me, um, the sinner label signified in the Gospels something um, different or beyond like moral status. It was really an indicator of what a sociologist would call uh, social deviance. So it's for people who were living outside the societal norms in some way were often labeled as a result uh, sinners. So within her, her um, 
city, it was probably a smaller village. Um, this woman was like, um, we'd say, non-compliant in some way. We don't know in what way she was non-compliant, but, you know, we're all part of groups and families and in every group and every family, and there's always a non-compliant person who just doesn't go along to get along, and it often has nothing to do with morality. It's just they're, they're like outside the, the social norms, and that seems to be how people were um, characterized in the Gospels when they were in, inhabiting that social space. They were regarded as um, sinners. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to think that Jesus himself probably carried the sinner label. Um, and he probably carried it from his birth. You know, we, we know that there was dispute about where did Jesus come from? Who were his true parents? Was Joseph really his father? Was some Roman soldier? Was Mary messing around on the side? And this traveled with Jesus wherever he went from the earliest days. So you wonder if his sensitivity to being labeled a sinner like this, like outside the social norms, wasn't something he was like very personally um, sensitive to. And it's, um, it's just worth considering. We, we label people, right? I mean, and we are labeled. We're like on both ends of that equation. Um, and, but Jesus' way of, of uh, relating to this woman makes us question that proclivity, that tendency we have to label people and also just to like buy into the ways that we are labeled by other people, even when the sinner label is especially interesting because it's like a, you'd say, theologically justified, you know, label. Like, you know, theologically in the Hebrew tradition, like anyone could qualify with the sinner label because it's understood that human beings, we just... We, miss, we, come out, we come out of the womb and we're missing the mark. We have faults, we sin, but, but this story is asking us to question, is this something we want to participate in, this labeling people as sinners? Should we label other people like this? And should we take on this sinner label uh, when it's applied to us. That's really the point of the story. I think it's a very important uh, effect of reading this story. And then there's a really telling detail. It's in um, verse 39. Um, I think that's the, is that the second paragraph in your thing? That There's little numbers there that signify the verse numbers. But it says, Simon sees the woman, and then it says, he said to himself, He's talking to himself. This man, if you were a prophet, should have known what sort of woman this is, that she's a sinner. So clearly that is um, Simon's internal dialogue we're tuning into there. And, and that's worth reflecting on. That, you know, we, um, we don't just label people with our explicit, you know, spoken words... Um, we also label people with our internal dialogue, right? What's going on in our head, our thoughts. We, we live in a society where all sorts of people are, are you know, get labels attached to them. And, and we, without thinking, we internalize that. Um, that's what it means to be a human being. You internalize what's going on in your social group. Where they're just the most social of all the mammals, it seems. And so, you know, things, prejudice, things like racism or homophobia or transphobia. Um, these are really infections of the mind. 
Um, and so, sure, we can clean up our language. And, you know, lots of us have, like, really cleaned up our language in recent decades. And bully for us, we cleaned up our language. But the labeling process goes deeper than that. It, it lodges inside us. It's, uh, we have internal reflexes that just get stimulated. I, you know, I... I have done the um, rotating shelter over at uh, St. Clair's there. We have a rotating shelter um, for the week of Thanksgiving. And I think for the last four times, I've taken the Thursday night. And um, it's, it's like um, the, the shelters get crowded. And so churches and faith communities around um, provide a rotating shelter. It's rotating because it goes from one you know place for a week to another place for a week. And this was... This is our weekend. Doggone it, this happens to me every time. You, you, you know, if you're a host for the rotating shelter, you come in and you go down a lower level and the tables are set up for a meal and, and uh, guests start arriving, homeless guys start arriving and, and also people who are there to socialize, play puzzles, just do things with the guests arriving and then the hosts who stay overnight are arriving and there's, you know, nobody has a sign that says I'm homeless, right? Um, and, it, and so you're always making like, okay, that person, you, you kind of figure out who's homeless and not. And I swear to God, every single time I have said, thought, oh, that must be a host or that must be someone who's socializing, that person has been white. And then later in the, in the morning when, when like people are, the guys are getting up, it's like, oh, no, that, that, that guy was homeless. So that's like an internalized reflex I, I have. And it's just like, it just affects our minds, this stuff. It's very much part of our internal dialogue. And, and this story to me is like, well, we should be examining our internal dialogue and owning it and not just like getting ourselves off the hook because, you know, we don't use all the bad words and whatnot to label people. The second thing I see in the story is that the the labeling really keeps us from um, seeing people. It, it, it really blinds us. So the story is about labeling, but it's also about different ways of seeing the same person. Um, and, you know, we notice this, right, when we're in um, close proximity with someone. We live with someone, we work closely with them, we're married to them, they're kids and a family, brothers and sisters, you just notice how, how you can, some, some, maybe something that ought to be like a minor annoyance happens. A person does something that just really should be like a minor annoyance and you just start like grinding away at it, you know, and you're just grinding away and grinding away and you're rehearsing it in your mind and then you're attaching it to all the other times that person in your 70-year history with them has done that. Like, you know, every, it's just, it's, it seems to come up every 17 months, you know, the same annoying thing. And, and we're grinding and we're grinding and then we realize, oh, well, I, I've, I've ground a new lens. You know, and I'm, I'm seeing this through this new lens of all my grounding, grand, and, and like, my friend is now a fiend. Like, how did that happen? How did that happen? We do this all the time. Um, we, we don't see people clearly. Um, 
the, the staging of this scene in Luke 7 is uh, pretty important, I think. So the, the woman, let's say this is the table. Jesus is reclined horizontally and is propped up at his elbow, feet back. She comes from behind and she's got the anointing oil and paraphernalia and that sort of thing. And I, I picture Simon probably on the other side of the table. And Simon clearly sees the woman, and it says so in the text, before Jesus sees her. And then he makes comment about the woman. And then Jesus is looking at Simon because Simon's talking. And then Jesus starts to talk back to Simon. He's looking at Simon. By the way, that little parable is kind of uh, subversive too because um, the money lender is the God figure in the, in the parable. And in that, that culture, it, was like it's not, it wasn't okay to lend money. Like the people who lend money are the bad guys in that society, and yet the moneylender turns out to be like the God figure. And Jesus was constantly doing this with his stories, inverting things, flipping them upside down. Um, but, but Jesus is clearly looking at Simon, um, and then finally he turns to look at the woman. So everything about this is like emphasizing the seeing and the looking, then turning toward the woman, like finally. He said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your home. You didn't give me water for my feet. These, are, these were all customs of hospitality that he's referencing here. But she, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. The kiss, kiss was also a hospitality um, custom. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with unguent, with uh, perfume. Here's the thing, like how we see people is what matters most about how we relate to them. So um, there's this conflict resolution institute, I think it's called uh, Arbinger, and they were doing this work on, uh, you know, in business. Like there's all this focus on improving your social skills in business. You know, like how to, how to get better people skills. And so, you know, you train your employees to have really good people skills so that, you know, that you can be more effective. You can do more sales. You can, you can just, everything works more smoothly. It's just good for the company if the employees have really good people skills. And it's like, man, if we just, let's just keep working on our people skills. But often the improved people skills is, is it's like lipstick on a pig, right? You know, I mean, because we humans are really sensitive to how other humans regard us. I mean, like, that's part of our whole survival strategy. We have to be good and quick. I mean, we make lots of mistakes, but generally speaking, we're pretty good at sensing through all sorts of subtleties and ways that you couldn't, like, describe or put into a people skill manual how people actually regard us. Like, what's the fundamental disposition of their heart toward us? And how we regard people leaks out around everything we do. You know, like, we can have the best people skills in the planet, and our regard will just leak out all around those fabulous 
people skills. You know, when I was in Milan, it was largely a blue-collar community, and I, I thought, this is really interesting, because in general, like, the conflict was, like, much more open in a blue-collar kind of a culture community. And then I actually appreciated that, and it made me realize how much white-collar stuff was this, all this fake niceness and his pleasantness, and then underneath all the underhanded way that the conflict was getting itself worked out, and it was like crazy making. It would just be, it would be so much simpler if we all just called each other names when we were mad at each other. At least it would signal instead of all this other, other stuff. I don't know why that came up, but it, was, it occurred to me, um, uh, this question of um, our fundamental regard is what counts. And that's what, what Jesus is getting after Simon for. Not his people's skills, not his rudeness, but his fundamental regard, his way of seeing the woman. The labeling was blinding Jesus to who this woman was. But the labeling also, it's, it's the reason it works so well for us and we resort to it, it, it conveniently blinds us to ourselves when we label another person. You know, the psychologists call it projection. We've got this stuff about ourselves we don't like about ourselves. I mean, we're all just filled with stuff we don't like about ourselves. And that's a super unpleasant experience because you can't get away from yourself. <laughs> you know, like you can't get a, a break from your friggin' self. You're just trapped all your life with yourself. And it's like you can't move out. You can't go to another state. You can't get away. You're just there with yourself. Big, big problem inside our heads. And so what we do for all that suffering is we just take the stuff we don't like about ourselves and we put it onto someone else and then we don't like them for that thing. It's called projection. It's a, it's a fantastic psychological thing for feeling better about yourself. And labeling is a lot of projection. And, and the thing we get out of labeling is we don't have to feel the bad stuff about ourselves that we put onto other with our labels. Um, so the, I'm going to end by looking at the um, forgiveness section. That's the last. I think it starts at verse... 47, it's like the last few um, sentences there, that last paragraph. And, you know, most um, significant human interactions are quite subtle, aren't they? And they're, um, you'd say they're complex. Uh, that, you know, you can, you can observe a human interaction and have a different take on it than someone else observing the very same interaction because interactions are so complex sometimes and this is one of those more complex interactions Jesus has with a woman. Um, so on the one hand he's, he's clearly defending the woman from the sinner label um, and yet he also in this context um, announces forgiveness. It, it, those don't seem to go together. And this, of course, can be interpreted many ways. You know, some people think that Jesus was just like, you know, see through you, man. He was like, his special power was seeing into everybody and he could just read your mail. And, and it seems like some, Jesus had a kind of prophetic thing. He could do that, but I don't think he was operating that way all the time. And so in this view, he's like, he's seeing the woman's sins and he's, he's announcing them forgiven. Um, 
But it just doesn't feel like that to me. Um, it feels like he's doing like a, some kind of a jujitsu move. He's like redirecting the hostility of this group away from the woman, from the people that are judging her. So I'm, you know, I'm thinking of her as just carrying this sinner label. Um, the narrator just says she's a sinner. He just, the narrator goes along. With she. So she's just like a known, there, it wasn't disputed. This woman was a, was a sinner. She had the label. She had the scarlet S on her chest. And she's in a, think about a social situation in which the labeling is now explicit. You know, and she's, it, she's standing out in front of a group and being labeled this way by the host, by the most powerful person, in the, the, the owner of the home. You know, if, if I called someone out in this space and I just said, so-and-so is a sinner. I mean, first of all, you'd think I'm a total jerk and that would be us. That would be correct. And I remind you, I haven't done this. Um, but if I did, that person... What would that person feel? That person would feel, wouldn't necessarily think I'm, I'm a jerk. They think a cascade of things would come into their mind of things they feel bad about themselves. And they would feel like, oh, you know, even if you, um, even if you bring public attention to a person in the group, it can stimulate social anxiety. Because we human beings know that groups can turn on you on a dime, and, and that's part of what social anxiety is about. So sometimes we don't even want anyone to draw any public attention to us in a group because of this dynamic. And just imagine how this woman um, would have felt in that situation. Um, you feel extremely vulnerable when you're in that setting. You feel exposed and you feel um, morally naked, you know. Morally naked feeling is that feeling you have like, oh gosh, if people knew this about me, you know, this, this stuff that really bothers me about, you know, stuff I'm not talking about openly, you know, people knew this stuff about me, oh, God, oh, I just, oh. That's, a, that's like a feeling of moral vulnerability or moral nakedness. And what I see happening is, it's like Jesus throwing a cover on this woman. And he's doing it in a way that it takes the heat off her and it actually puts it on the labelers. In fact, interestingly, at the very end, his action kind of provokes them and now he's subject to their criticism rather than the woman because of the forgiveness conversation. Um, forgiveness is a weird thing, isn't it? I mean, forgiveness is this, you know, especially in the Christian tradition, forgiveness, super important. Can we all agree? Forgiveness is super important. But our experience is that forgiveness can be a really weird thing when you're on the receiving end of it. Um, forgiveness is something that can be used for and against people. Um, so I, uh, believe it or not, I, I fished for a while. I'm quite proud of myself. A real outdoorsy type, and I can just relate to regular guys, you know, because I, I, I have a, I have a past. I, I used to, I used to fish, and the the thing that just bothered me about fishing is like I'd catch these smaller than legal size fish, and then and I also didn't like to eat fish that much, and so you take the you take the fish off the hook. Now, 
Forgiveness is kind of like taking someone off the hook. Now, sometimes, you know, the, the, it's just the hook is just set nicely, and it's just around the little lip of the fish, and studies have shown that the fish don't feel any pain with that, and you take the hook off, and you let them go, and they're just like, wow, I just had a rapture experience. I've been hearing about the rapture in Sunday school, and whoosh, I was up on it, and then they're telling stories about, you know, there's a, there's a whole different place, and it's, it's like, wow, and it's uh, they can like form a cult and a religion down there. It's just awesome for the fish, I'm thinking. But there are sometimes when you're fishing when the hook gets caught in you know, like too much of the lip and you're, it's got that little other edge on it and it doesn't come out so easily. And oh, sometimes it gets caught in like, I don't know, the fish's tongue. It feels like it gets caught in the fish's tongue or it gets like half swallowed by the fish. And you're, you know, you're getting out pliers and like, I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm performing like throat surgery on this poor fish. And I haven't been trained and then every now and again you just get frustrated just pull the thing out it's it's like I don't want to be involved in this anymore you know I just I'm sorry I'm not good enough at this whole thing oh God what have I done to this fish I am so sorry and you put the fish back in the water it just floats Forgiveness can feel like that, you know, in the hands of some people, you know. Ever get an email from someone that you, maybe, I don't know, you had some falling out, and man, from your point of view, they just treated you badly, and you're like, I need to respect myself, and I need to, like, not have further contact with this person, and four years later, you get an email from the person, and the email begins, I just am emailing you to say that I have forgiven you. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. I hope you live a happy life. That feels creepy, doesn't it? It really feels creepy. And forgiveness can feel creepy sometimes like that. This is the opposite experience. Um, Notice um, we're in that last section. Notice the past tense. Not, I now forgive you. But your sins have been forgiven. Both times, it's the past tense. Your sins have been forgiven. Time in the past, unspecified. Maybe happened a while ago. I'm just noting it, you know. Jesus isn't even pronouncing it so much. as He's just like noting, hey, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't seem to have any particular interest in what her sins were. I don't, I don't, we don't even know that he knew what her sins were. This is like blanket forgiveness, unrelated to confession or acknowledgement, which is not the way it's supposed to be done. If Jesus were training as a priest, he would flunk the sacrament of confession class, you know, where the person has to name the sin, has to own it, and it's all, that, that's all good stuff. That's part of the 12 steps. I love it, you know. 12 steps are not about forgiveness, though. They're about make, making amends. That's different. So anyway, he would have flunked. He would have flunked the class because he left out all these steps. She doesn't acknowledge anything. She doesn't name anything. She, he just blanket. In one brilliant act, I think she's the hero. Simon's the goat. She's the rich lover. Simon's the stingy lover. Jesus has shifted her status in that hostile setting from place of the accused to place of honor. She's the example of doing things right. Is it in Luke or is it in another gospel? It even goes so far as to say, whatever this woman has been done, 
wherever the gospel is preached, whatever this woman has done for me will be mentioned. Like he makes a statue for her. He memorializes the woman. He's flipped an occasion of public shaming into an occasion of public accolade. Um, but in our praise of Jesus, let's not forget the woman. I mean, she's awesome also. Kudos to the woman. I mean, just look at this woman. How she doesn't give a flying... She doesn't give a rat's... She, she doesn't give a hoot. She does not give a hoot about Simon or the social dynamic in which she finds herself. All that shaming that is heaped on her, she's not owning it. She's not taking it in. She seems to me impervious to it. It doesn't affect her actions one bit. She could care less what Simon thinks of her. She figures out a long time ago what Simon thinks about her reveals more about Simon than it reveals about me. I don't know who I like better in this episode, Jesus or the woman. I'm going to call it a tie. For orthodoxy's sake, it's a tie in favor of Jesus. But both of them are just, they're just such originals, aren't they? Isn't it great when someone just does something and you say, I, I never thought of saying that in this situation or approaching this situation in this way. It's completely surprising. It's brilliant. You're doing so many things with one fell swoop. It's like, it's a true original. I, I want to say when I see that, like, where did they come from? Uh, what are they in touch with? Um, I, I want to be in touch with what they're in touch with. What, what they're in touch with is God. And, and this story, that makes me want to be in touch with God the way that um, God is being portrayed here in this story. So we're going to end with a little reflection um, today. We are going to do a visualization meditation, everybody. Are you ready? Um, so to do a visualization just means picturing something in your mind's eye with a kind of the visual, internal visual sense. Um, a couple of things I've learned about visualization is don't try to do it good, you know? Like it's not about seeing the thing clearly. You're doing it in your mind's eye. It's like it's vague. It's whatever. It's more about the general feeling you get in a visualization than it is like a very crystal. Some people are really good at like crystal clear visualizations, others aren't. It's not about that, it's more about the feeling. And this will be a visualization of like, how, would, how one would one visualize like the light of God as it's revealed here in the story coming to us. And like the different metaphors for God. You know, there's a lot of word metaphors. Jesus is the word. But a word you have to hear, you have to understand, you have to interpret. Light is a much easier metaphor to deal with, you know, because you just see it. It just is what it is. It just has its effect. You've been around and your mind's all tied up in knots and you see like a shaft of light come in through the window and it's shining on a house plant and you're just looking at it. You're not like analyzing it. You're like out of the word space into the, wow, that looks great space. So that's the advantage of visualization. So first, just uh, get comfortable in your seat there. Um, don't be worried about distracting noises. That's all part of being around. Um, maybe keep your eyes open at first with just a soft focus and take maybe three or four deep breaths into the nose, out through the mouth.
And now, if you haven't already, you can just gently close your eyes and then um, scan down your body just to be aware of your, your bodied presence here. Um, and you just do that by picturing how does your body feel from uh, the top of your head down to your feet. This would maybe take about 30 seconds just to note how your body feels. Not that trying to change how it feels, but just note how your body feels from the top of your head down to the tip of your feet. And now if you would just shift the attention to the middle of your chest and then picture just a beam of, of warm light, not blinding, um, just like the sun streaming through the window on a plant, say. And picture that beam of light um, just shining on, on the middle of your chest. Just receive that. And then if you can, just Picture it as best you can, just diffusing from that center point in the middle of your chest, just diffusing throughout your whole body. Just that light coming in, diffusing through your body. Sit with that for a bit. And now, if you will, just uh, picture someone that you love, um, someone who's important to you, um, important enough that you, there could be some complexity to your relationship. Um, they could be nearby, they could live near, or they could live far away. Um, just call that person to mind, just sitting near you. And then picture that same light, just now sh shining on them right in the middle of their chest, and then... Again, diffusing throughout their body as your mind wanders and you have a lot of, you know, stray thoughts, just return your focus to that image of the light shining on that person on their center of their chest and then diffusing from there throughout their body.
Uh, very good. Here endeth the meditation. So we're going to.